0: Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech, Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, we have a bunch of uh, Cognitechs that will be out and about in the world. I want to mention a few of the places they'll be this month. So this is all in 2016, uh, November of 2016 specifically. So first up, uh, there's a meetup, uh, Clojure PDX, Portland, Oregon, Stu Halloway will be there. Um, Or rather, he'll be giving a remote presentation on agility and robustness uh, in closure spec. Uh, That's November 3rd. Uh, The venue for that is Portland, although, like I said, it's a remote presentation. Um, Mike Nygaard will be doing a bunch of stuff in November. He'll be all over the place, actually, um, doing a lot of cool talks. First stop for him is the DevOps Enterprise Summit, which is in San Francisco. Uh, That's happening November 7th through the 10th. At the Hilton San Francisco Union Square, um, he will be presenting at that conference. Um, he will be doing training at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, also in San Francisco. That's happening uh, November 13th and 14th. The title there is Architecture Without an End State. Uh, it's a two-day course. Um, again, taught by Mike Nygard. Uh, this, by the way, is not closure specific. Um, you can search on that for more info. We got a lot of uh, a lot of things to talk about today, so I'll leave you to discover those on the internet. Um, more Mike Nygaard in Iceland at Go Digital. Uh, this is November 16th at the Hilton Reykjavik Nordica. Um, you'll be speaking there at that conference. Uh, Karen Meyer will be speaking at Ohio DevFest, uh, which is this is happening Saturday, November 19th at the Tangeman or tangeman not sure which university center. Um, of course, the Closure Conj is coming up. Um, that is, I suppose, technically in December, although the training course is happening immediately before. We have uh, the Atomic course. I'll be teaching the Closure course. Those are at the very end of November. Um, uh, the conference itself is December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. This is happening in Austin, Texas. Still tickets available. Um, you should go to closure conj for information about the speaker lineup, which has been posted. Um, and to buy tickets and sponsorship opportunities are still available. So lots of good stuff at closure-conj.org. Uh, finally, I want to mention Enclosure. So this is India's first ever closure conference. Um, very exciting. This is November twenty-sixth at the Hotel Novotel in I believe it's pronounced uh, Pune, uh, India. Um, so we've actually had a whole episode where we talked uh, about uh, our producer. Kim Foster's visit to India and about the closure scene there. Obviously, that's uh, coming along very nicely since they are now having a a conference. So you can check that out at enclosure.org, I-N, closure, all one word. It's closure with a J uh, as usual. Um, So definitely check that out. That looks to be exciting. Um, We're we're certainly psyched that, uh, that that's happening there. Um, but that, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, so we will leave it with that and go on to episode 112 of the Cognicast. I was the one that clearly wasn't ready. Um, so here we go. Uh, welcome, everybody. Today is Tuesday, October 18th in the year 2016, and this is the CogniCast. We are very, very pleased to welcome back, uh, right back, in fact, as it turns out. We just shipped their episode, their previous episode today. Uh, we're recording again right after the, the release of that. I'm talking, of course, about Misha Niskin and Alan Diaper. Welcome to the show, Misha and Alan. Hey, thank you, Craig. Good to be back. Uh, it was. It's really great that you were able to record again. I mean, it's not that soon for us. Like we recorded that episode way back a couple months ago, but um, it's perfect timing, in my opinion, to have you back on. You know, we just got done talking about. We just. Our audience will have just in the last couple weeks have heard you talking about boot. Um, they're well aware then that that conversation uh, we left off before we could talk about. Um, Javelin and Hoplon, which are two other extremely interesting technologies that I have been using in my uh, my free time projects quite extensively over the last few months. So, and of course, we will cover um, other things as they come up. You, you, the two of you, are both just endless fonts of interesting information, anecdotes, hijinks, <laughs> and so forth and so on. So, uh, I'm I'm sure we will have another great conversation. I'm Looking forward to it. But of course, before we get into that, we always ask uh, at the beginning of the question, uh, beginning of the show, a question about art. Specifically, we ask for our guests to share with us some experience of art, whatever they think that means. And uh, since we had Misha go last time, which resulted in, I think it's safe to say, the creepiest cover we've ever had on any of our uh, episodes ever. It was also (laughs) awesome, by the way. Um, Bam. Yeah. (laughs) We we had you go last time, and that resulted in that. So this time we're going to ask Alan to answer the art question. So, Alan, would you like to share with us an experience of art?
1: Uh, Sure. So... I think uh, maybe it's a kind of performance art. Uh, I mean, everything is art. Nothing is art. Um, but I, I would call this art. There is, uh, so I'm, as you know, I'm kind of fascinated with space travel and space exploration and you know the heyday of space travel, Apollo programs, stuff like that. Uh, and I've always been interested in that. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and a pilot. But uh, I think in my adult life, I was sort of reinitiated with uh, Russ Olson's incredible talk about um, sort of the developer engineer legacy and how that and the relationship of our of that towards uh, the relationship of that to the, the space race. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah,
0: that's, that talk is excellent. People should go <laughs> yeah. look up Russ Olson's To the Moon and to see yeah. exactly what you're talking about.
1: Amazing. I was really um, fortunate to, to have seen it live, and it was just uh, really moving to to hear the story told from someone who was there, who was there as a child, you know, a particularly imaginative, engaged child talking about what it was like to be in the same world while that was going on, you know. And as a, someone who existed in the future, I've always, you know, I have a sense of nostalgia about it. So it's like 10 times more awesome probably than it ever was. Um, but obviously, you know, the space program is not really a work of art, but I think, you know, like any big endeavor, there are there are works of art performed routinely, and one of the neater things that I've seen related to the space program that was kind of an artistic interaction was, um, and this is kind of a, the astronauts actually have some artistic art, 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 art flexibility, especially in the '60s, because um, the astronauts would be on TV and they would be on the radio, and. NASA amazingly did not really script what they were going to say. They gave the astronauts a fair amount of leeway into what they were going to say on these shows, and um, which is pretty incredible. I think you know the first humans doing this basically are just given an open mic and ask you know how do you feel about this because everybody really wanted to know like what's it like to be further away from Earth than any human ever has been, and what would a person say to that, uh, and. <clears throat> I think, by and large, the astronauts were performers and artists because they prob- they were probably the only people in the world who were capable of both doing that mission and also having, like, that casual tongue-in-cheek kind of test pilot sort of worldview. <laughs> so they could be, like, you know, flying into the sun to their doom and they would crack some joke, you know?
0: Yeah, is it warm in here?
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Is that just me? Did someone to turn it up or yeah. are we going to die in 10 seconds, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um. And I'd, I'd always admired that kind of humor and that kind of affect. And, you, you know, if you've read uh, The Right Stuff by Wolf, and he talks about that a lot in the old Chuck Yeager personality meme. But um, so that's kind of the, the context. But the piece of art in particular that I'm thinking of, is so there is a mission Apollo 8, which was uh, in December of 1968. So we landed on the moon in, I think, May of 1969. July, I believe. July, that's right. So Apollo 8 was one of the precursor missions. It was the first mission to orbit the moon. They did not land on the moon, but they went all the way out there. They orbited it and went around the dark side uh, and came back. And, uh, you know, as I understand it, just from history books and stuff, you know, 1968 was like a tough year for everybody uh, with uh, Tet Offensive and RFK assassination and, um Martin uh, Luther King was assassinated in that year, too. So everyone was on edge. Very crappy year. So these astronauts on this Apollo 8 mission were kind of in a weird spot because they were supposed to say something nice. And it happened that they were um, headed to the moon on Christmas Eve of 1969, So or 68. So everyone was tuned in, anticipating what they were going to see, and I imagine hoping to be distracted. And so uh, there was an interview... I, later, I saw where they explained why they made the selection. But basically, the astronauts chose to read from the Book of Genesis, like from the beginning. Um, and there's this very moving piece of video where they had the spacecraft camera aimed at Earth with an odometer that was rising, 172 million or 172,000 miles, 173,000 miles. So you can tell they're going at super fast speeds. And the guy's is just reading from the beginning of Book of Genesis. You know, in the beginning, there was nothing, and and then, uh, you know, God moved over the face of the waters and so on. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's its music video-like in that it seems almost too beautiful to have happened for real. And um, I don't know. It was, it, it was an artistic experience. And mm-hmm. I, I definitely would count the astronauts who had that idea as artists, because I would have no idea what to say if they said, hey, you're going to the moon. What do you tell the folks back at home? So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't,
2: I don't think art is necessarily an artifact, that you make that well, is art. I think it's more uh, like when you look at something, you might consider it to be art because of what it does.
1: So there is, a cool part of it is there is kind of an artifact because there's somebody recently made a music video that mashes up uh, a kind of spacey, upbeat tune with the NASA footage of the dude saying this. And the, the artist is Lindstrom. He's like a Norwegian Norwegian space disco is the genre. <laughs> But there's this kind of weird, spacey, futuristic music playing, and then the astronaut reading from Genesis, and it's pretty surreal. Uh, if you search for, I think Lindstrom, um, space Apollo Eight on YouTube, you'll you'll hit it. Very very crazy, interesting video.
0: Very cool, and we will of course put a link to that in the show notes so people can find it easily that way too. Well, it's interesting to me. I mean, I so I, I agree with your your statement at the beginning there alan it's like well what is what is art art is everything art is nothing but but the 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 definition i always kind of reach for just to have something to hang on to is you know it's something whose intent is or effect perhaps is to make you feel something to make the observer or participant feel something and it the space program is clearly clearly like a very strong intersection of emotion and technology for many people. I mean it's the pinnacle of technology in many ways. And yet people also have this really strong kind of emotional attachment too. And and I think your example is a great um, you know, almost the pinnacle of that, right? Like how could you that that's that's clearly something that is definitely about you know, the feel, the feel of something, the emotional impact of a moment uh, combined with technology. <laughs> I yeah. mean, Admittedly, technology that is less powerful than what we all have in our pockets right now, but, but more impressive nonetheless.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think by that definition, you know, something meant to impart a feeling then. I don't, I don't necessarily think the intent is at all relevant. I think it's the effect that's, that makes it art, not the intent. i buy that. Yeah. I mean, there's multiple definitions. I mean, some things, some things you can call art retroactively, you know?
0: Yeah, sure. I think
1: they, yeah,
2: for me anyway, I think that's the necessary and sufficient condition. Like, I don't think you can actually make art. I think it can be art, you know, if a person experiences it in a certain way, but,
1: mm. you know? So you're saying it's like an eye beholder kind of thing?
2: Yeah, just like, you know, yeah. I mean, I think we have, we have math and, and science and whatnot to explain the world. But we have art to explain ourselves, you know, and that has to be, I think, an internal thing that you, you know, the person experiences that. It's like an un, can't really describe it in terms of like logical systems. Mm.
0: The, the distinction that comes to my mind when you say that is, um, so I, I, this is what I talk to my kids about is, you know, I think there's a, a confusion a lot of times. And I'm not saying that this is something that either of you is um, doing, but just it's an interesting phenomenon between kind of an artifact and an event so, like I say, well, let's say that, you know, we all sat down and played a game of Monopoly. And then we put the game in the box and we put the game on the shelf. And I would say, well, where is the game? And they would say, well, it's on the shelf. And I said, well, no, no, I mean the game we just played, right? Like mm-hmm. we all sat around and we can talk about that. We played it this time. We played at that time. Where is that? And, of course, the answer doesn't make any sense, but I think that there are times – and that, that's kind of the point of that exercise that I run through them was, is to be able to differentiate between, you know, artifacts and events. Because sometimes we talk about things like, you know, where is this thing? But really it was, it was an event, it was a process, and it doesn't make sense for it to be, to be in a place. Like where does the light go when, when you turn it off? Like that type of, that type of question. So hmm. anyway, <laughs> sorry. No, that's a really cool story, Alan. I mean, a really cool... Um, uh, I'm glad you related that. That's a very good, and it's good observations from the both of you on that. But uh, I love this part of the show, but we do, of course, um, have other things <laughs> that we would like to talk about as well. No, no,
1: no. Let's keep going with this. Let's
0: we, t- we could. <laughs> I know we definitely could. No, no. Let's please not. Uh, well, so the only thing that stops me from doing that is that we were in the middle of what I thought was a really interesting conversation last time, and we didn't yes. get a chance to finish it. And so I, I, um, as much as this is interesting, I'd love to loop back to that. No, totally. I'm just kidding. Oh, Let's, no, I mean, yeah. but, but, right, I get that. Like, you're, Alan, you're a funny guy. Funny guy, Alan. Real funny guy. I'll shut up now. Yeah. No, no, don't shut up. That's kind of the point is for you not to shut up. If you shut up, Misha, the show gets. I'll shut right. up so, and then Misha can talk. Well, that'd be okay. That'd be okay. But, um, anyway, so, Alan, <laughs> can't you do anything right? <laughs> um, so the, the last time on the show, uh, we basically, um, covered, uh, the first leg of the tripod of technologies that I, uh, kind of had you on to talk about, which, uh, the three are Boot, Hoplon, and Javelin. I, I don't know if that's the right order, but um, we talked about Boot first, which makes sense to me. It's kind of, in my opinion, the the right place to start. But we didn't get a chance because there was so much interesting stuff to go through to talk about Javelin and Hoplon. Now, if if I was going to guess, I would imagine that it makes sense to sort of jump over to javelin first but um, maybe you as the creators of these technologies have a different opinion so I'll leave it to um, to the two of you to decide how we should approach that So what we would like to do I think is um, you know maybe explain what it is for anybody that hasn't had a chance to to encounter uh, or not. But uh, but then I'd like to have a bunch of questions I want to ask you about it since I've been using it a bunch. So, so all of which is a long I, yeah. way to – go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. no, I haven't yeah. thought
1: about how to lead into this.
0: Okay. So the last time, if
1: I remember correctly, we talked a little bit about the origin story to like set up the background and the kind of things we were facing that resulted in the thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I told most of that story, but I feel like in this case, Misha kind of owns the origin story because he's the one who did the original work on – this technology at the Fresh Diet, and I think he probably went through the most evolutions of it. Uh, like I'm talking about, like the white labeling problem and stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So awesome. maybe, so maybe, sure.
1: Misha could start there, and then I could.
0: Yeah, I love origin stories. Go for it. All right, it. cool. Yeah,
2: yeah. So um, originally, I was working with uh, with Ray Willig at the Fresh Diet. He also like we we started using closure there, and uh, we had really, really good. Uh, a good experience with closure. This was in like maybe 2012, something like that. And um, <clears throat> uh, the, so the specific problem that we had, the company delivered fresh gourmet meals all around the country. So we had kitchens all over the place in all these different cities. And we did the entire stack from sourcing fresh ingredients. We had our own deliveries. We did routing, everything. And we had like a very, um, like a very full-featured, interface that the customers could use to, you know, figure out which, like we would publish menus that had like lots of choices and they could choose different things that they wanted and they can also adjust them saying they didn't like things and, or if they did like things, they could have extra, like extra peppers, whatever. And, uh, also there were, um, a ton of more and more complex, uh, like promotional, uh, like marketing promotions. So and they would they would involve things like you can order a plan for a month so it's a month's worth of food but you don't have to consume it all you can only get like a day here and then like next week you get two days of food and so on so you could order like 30 days worth of food and then you know if you want to quit within the first week we prorate it according to this formula and then if you want to quit with the second week so anything anyway they they kept making more and more complex uh marketing type uh models that we would have to implement and also they were reaching this, the, the size where they had to start modularizing the business because they, were, they already were doing a lot of direct business with customers, but there was a lot of money also in being the back end to other people. So like celebrity chefs, for example, would want to make their own front end and use our services because we had the domain knowledge to actually make the food and deliver it, which is not, you know, it's, it's pretty complicated. Anyway, so our system was this like 250,000 line PHP application that basically mediated every single aspect of operations of the company. And so they're like, hey, Misha, can we like just white label this stuff? And (laughs) there's no way. Like, you Mm -hmm. cannot. You know, it was all like HTML being emitted by PHP with like hundreds of CSS things coming in and out. So, like, it's just not possible. So we have to think about how to make a system that would be flexible enough to allow different customers to have different workflows. So, like a case, uh, an example of a specific case of this was we had a a customer who wanted to use us with a nutrition focus rather than the focus that the Fresh Diet had. So that means that the user interface would be, you know, kind of centered around um, nutritional, like this nutrition database view of your meals which was unlike what the fresh diet itself was doing and so how do you start to reconcile the two it's not just changing css or making colors different or whatever it's an actual workflow change and so we wanted to think of a way to make basically a framework for making applications on top of our service and it had to be it had to be done such that we could make a new white label site within a certain amount of time in order to get the deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we we looked around at all all the different things that were available and tried experiments. And we did a lot of weird things too, like using Jekyll to generate a static site, which then used Knockout to talk to the back end, like weird stuff like that. And uh, we ended up um, realizing that we needed to separate completely the the workflow part, which is basically the state of the application and, and the the application as a state machine from the user interface, the presentation, or the you know, what you see on the screen. And because a lot of the a lot of the aspects of the workflow are business logic, business concerns. So those are, you know, th- those are constant. They're, those are those will be in any implementation. And But they have to be in the client too. In other words, how, like a person needs to select um, whether they're vegetarian or not before they can look at their menu, for instance, or something like that. So these aspects of the workflow are universal and they need to be, their, their, um, uh, they, al- they always need to be maintained by the system. And we ended up eventually um, using ClojureScript. And Hoplon basically came out of that.
1: And the I think the influence of the spreadsheet model, too. Seemed right. Like. Because, yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that, so as a, at the, when Misha did most of this thinking and uh, initial implementation, I did not work with the Fresh Diet, but I was communicating with him, you know, on the, on the side channel. And it seemed like one of the things that he arrived at was the idea that you needed to separate the workflow, in other words, the business you have a business and there's domain knowledge with the business and there are certain operations that are valid or invalid given some configuration of domain data that's a separate thing than from what the person can see and what and what, what things they how they're allowed to influence that workflow and one of the things that Misha ran into that he very excitedly told me about if i remember right was that that's basically what a spreadsheet is if you consider a spreadsheet and charts based on a spreadsheet as a workflow and views into that, like mediated views into the underlying workflow. And uh, so what you end up with, and I think an example we've used at a previous talk, I remember Misha talking about this, is like if you're at a business and someone comes up with a spreadsheet, let's say someone in, in the accounting department comes up with a spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet has the financials for the past three quarters. But then someone in the marketing department wants to make charts for their presentation, they don't understand the accounting bit, but they can look at the existing spreadsheet and hook up new different kinds of charts. Or I guess the the modern term for this is mashups. Like You mash up the data you got from the accounting department with data you get from the business analysis team or whatever, and you come up with a, a derivative diagram. And What you end up with is a directed acyclic graph of data and dependencies and visualizations. The visualizations are the leaves. Those are the things that the end user sees. But underneath is a dag of views into the state of the workflow. Mm-hmm. And then the part that spreadsheets don't have as much. I mean, they do have this if you are willing to tangle with script, But um, an input thing, other than manipulating the cells directly. You know, adding buttons and behaviors to initiate workflows. Um, and that's that's something that we take on with Hoplon and Javelin too, so
2: yeah. I think there's an, an interesting division between um, I, I, there's probably a, a an official word for this, but I think of it as resident programs and you know applications that perform work. So like the back end of our application, for example, the thing that runs on the server, it's the request response type of model. It's not it's not a resident program that's containing a bunch of state, uh, that can be inspected, um, individually. So a user interface though, or a editor or something like that, I think of as like a resident system in that there's all this state that's in there and the user might be looking at a lot of it at once. So with a request response, like a database say, um, you get all these requests coming in and you, don't, you want everything to be lazy rather than eager. In other words, I'm not going to, like in a database you have views and views are not really tables usually. Usually there's some kind of like compiled query because you don't want to do the work of you know, updating every view when a new row comes into the database um, because that would be very expensive. Whereas with like a user interface or a resident type of program, you actually do want to do that work because you don't know what the user is looking
1: at. Right. I think Hmm. maybe the difference between them is the entry points, like, or the things you choose to make visible or not. Like when you have a service that multiple users are going to be using, like your multi-tenant or multi-client, it's important that you don't expose all of the data to any one peer or client, as opposed to in the JVM or Emacs, where you have no idea which pieces of data that the program has accumulated that they're going to want to look at or not. So you're not, it's not, you make no effort to protect or hide data from people, at least, at least insane systems. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think for the two, for the two types of, of application that you have, um, you have two different types of sort of state flow models. So for a user interface where all the state, where a lot of state needs to be accessible, you have a situation where you have you know, a database that's updating the views as soon as new information comes in, meaning it's pushing it out. Um, So, for example, um, well, I guess we could look at the other side now. So the the other side is sort of on the back end, like a database, say. Um, You don't actually want to do that. If you have a million users and each user can see, you know, their their own stuff in the database, every time a new Piece of information comes in. You don't want to update all the, every view for every user. You know, even if a piece of data might affect a bunch of users, you wait until they make a query. And I think that's kind of the separation. So if you have a situ if you have a situation where you want to eagerly push out changes everywhere, which is I think what you want to do in a UI, um, then you could use something like Javelin. Whereas if you're on the other end, where you want to resolve those things lazily that's something a place where core async would be good because you're feeding you're feeding data down a pipe you know so that's where you want queues and things like that but on the other end in the you know in the UI you don't really want a queue the thing needs to fan out and um, constraints need to be satisfied so you have you have a bunch of constraints and so i think that's i think that's basically how we ended up with javelin was the need to Not use queues in the front end because what we really needed were was the spreadsheet.
0: Let's dig down that a little bit. I'm I'm having so because there's a couple things in there that I'd like to unpack. So, I mean, what is it about queues that's inherently bad? I mean, we do asynchronous things in the front end all the time, even in a reactive metaphor like um, Javelin. Certainly, when we're talking off. The box, right? That's inherently asynchronous. But even when I've written UIs, and I'm far from an expert, so I'm more than willing to believe that I'm doing something wrong. I I do, in fact, employ queues. Like, I mean, web workers. I use those in my UI to, you know, to to, to get certain properties. So, but so maybe that's not quite what you're talking about, though. Like, I'm I'm curious, no, though. Uh, what... I mean,
2: I don't I don't mean to say that queues are bad, because of course, a queues like one of the fundamental building blocks that we use to build applications but i think so i think there's a there's a there are times when you need to to push out changes and there's times when you want to pull changes you know or i guess that's not i'll, I'll give an example with a spreadsheet for example when you change a cell it pushes updates to all the other cells which are satisfying constraints you know all the formulas are kind of like a constraint solver so it pushes out all the formulas update and the state sort of atomically changes from one state Mm -hmm. to the next and all of your charts update themselves. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: What that eliminates is the time dependency. So you don't care necessarily, like all the cells know when they need to update and in fact, at the end of the day, it's as if they had all updated atomically in one instant because no cell can see any other cell in a, other than in the latest state that mm-hmm. it was in. For example, if I have cells A and B that are input cells, and then I have some cell C, which contains the sum of A and B, C will never see A in an older state than B, say. Right, I right. guess if I, if I update, yeah. So each cell only sees the things that it depends on, the cells it depends on, after they've already updated, if they're going to update.
0: So it's, it's really about atomicity, and of course, if you have a queue, you can't guarantee that, right? You've gone from...
2: You, right, you, like if you have three queues, yeah. how long do you wait till all the results are in before you act on it? Right, right,
0: right, right, right. Okay, yeah, okay. I think,
1: yeah, if you, and I've experienced this, well, before Misha started working on Javelin and caught the spreadsheet bug, is actually at Relevance for us working on a system That was an online video conferencing system, and the metaphor we picked for modeling uh, state transitions in the UI, which I think was CoffeeScript in a browser at the time, was the event bus, which is kind of the the classical pattern for modeling events in a UI. And I think that's when I sort of hit on this problem of the suddenly time becomes important again in consuming a Like a queue consumer is kind of like an infinite loop in the sense that it's a process that has its own life cycle because it's consuming from this queue. And suddenly it becomes important, you know, how close the messages are to each other, like flash messages for example. Like places in this UI would put a message on a queue if they wanted to show the, you know, error connecting dialogue. Now obviously we don't want to spam the user with, to fill up their screen with these error connecting dialogues. If one exists already, then we shouldn't show a new one. And what that means is now we have a little accumulator in there, a stateful accumulator that says, if there is a thing showing when I receive a message, re-enqueue this message to show up in 30 seconds or whatever, which was less than ideal. I mean, granted, I may have been just doing it wrong at the time, but it, it was definitely evident to me that there was this temporal, like once once I admitted queues, or in this case a bus, uh, which I think they have the same properties as far as UIs go, um, in that there was no implicit ordering of events, you need to bring the ordering yourself. And you need to do that by accumulating things in places and then have timeout policies and stuff like that. So instead of being a nice graph of dependencies, your the state associated with the way the UI looks becomes a graph of accumulators and policies and retry policies. And it got it was ungainly.
2: Okay. And a lot of the... A lot of the real strengths of queues is when you need to farm out work to independent, separate processes that don't necessarily know about each other. You know, so like you have workers, like a web worker or whatever. So things like that are, are great when you have some process that can be done by any anonymous worker, and you just need to make sure it gets done. That's what's really great about queues, I and mean, you can get back pressure, and you can manage, you know, all these other little threads or processes or whatever. Um, But with user interfaces, that's not the case a lot of times. A lot of times, like, the place that's showing you this flash message or whatever is a particular place. And it's not it's not like any element can just pick up this job of showing an error. It's like it has to be in that particular place. Right.
1: It's not necessarily, and this is, I think, inherent in the, pro- in the problem of the UI is that the UI is a singleton thing. The human being can only perceive so much stuff, and that that stuff constitutes one single place per the application. So you know the place in the, in the UI where the flash message shows, for the purposes of the user's visual field, that is a singleton place. Yep. it is a single place in the person's field of view where a thing may or may not appear, and you know that's just not. It's not appropriate. It's, cues aren't appropriate there because they're they're applicable when, like Misha said, you have work that you want to get. You, you needs to get done, but you don't care when it's done. With UIs, it's more important when it's done. Yeah, and also the True. the progression of state
2: needs to be like I think I think you need to think a lot about that's that's mostly what I think about when I make a UI is like how does state progress. And so it can, it can progress either from, uh, well, so the user interface at any given time, when you load the page, it'll be quiescent. You know, it'll be, you know, it will have loaded everything that it needs to initialize and then it waits for the user to interact with it usually, unless there's some kind of, you know, connection with the backend that might do things. But so the UI is at rest. And the only thing that will transition it to a new state is either, is something from the outside world, from the environment. So either the user interacts with it or the back end, or some interaction with, you know, your database or, or whatever. And so, I think when you have a system like that, also, and um, all the all the elements that are on the screen, all the widgets, um, they're they're stateful as far as the user is concerned. And those states are satisfying some constraint, meaning they have some relationship to the state that's in the front end. And now the state might change, so. In other words, the user might do something, and some interaction might happen with the back end, and maybe the two of those, you know, together interact with each other, meaning the user says they want to create, they want to buy a shoe, and maybe the back end says there's no shoes available or something like that. But it's, that's when it becomes really useful to have formulas that have the dependency graph, because that can allow you to not do extra work. Um, so I guess the, the guarantees of Javelin are, we're kind of getting into the, what the guarantees are. But well, and I, I mean, guess Javelin, cool. too. Yeah.
1: It's a script library that you use from yeah. ClojureScript, and it gives you this spreadsheet-like computing environment for building and arranging these state machines slash spreadsheet-like constructs that are you know, aligned with this philosophy that we're yeah. unveiling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we should go over like the uh, please. The, the constraints of, or, or the, the features of it. Yeah,
0: yeah, please go ahead.
1: Yeah, so uh, your average spreadsheet, it has, so it's important to make a distinction between the spreadsheet that you have in mind right now, which is this grid of cells, and what we say when we talk about spreadsheet, which is like the underlying computation model. So a typical spreadsheet like Excel, it has a field. Uh, x and y dimensions, and that's your namespace more or less that's how you enter values and see values then there's the computing model underneath that, which is the re- relationship between these cells and the the constraints that mediate the relationship between the cells
0: right which isn't rectangular even a little bit <laughs>
1: right right and Yeah, it's sort of incidental that it's a rectangle. I mean, it could be a hypercube. It doesn't really, whatever.
0: (laughs) Well, arguably it is if you consider like tabs, where Mm. you can have formulas on one tab. So it's not strictly rectangular, right? I mean, it 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 goes beyond that, and I think you can even pull in data from other sources. Anyway, we're kind of going outside the useful bit. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you.
1: Yeah, no, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like from the from the as a computing environment, the average desktop spreadsheet it takes on variables and namespaces. It takes on uh, dependency or, you know, propagation of new values throughout the thing. And the part that we talk about when we say spreadsheet is the part that propagates the value. Now, in ClojureScript, when you're using this Javelin library, you're not, there's nothing grid-like about it. Your values, your input cells are going to be named either locals or top-level definitions, just like any other ClojureScript program. Um, and what Javelin does is it gives you a way to connect those places in a way similar to the way that you connect cells in a spreadsheet. So you can have the same expectations about what data will appear where when these inputs change. Um and you're welcome to make a grid of these if you want. Like it's pretty straightforward to make a spreadsheet when you have Javelin. And probably even easier now that there's uh ClojureScript and ClojureScript pretty easily available. Uh you could very easily make a spreadsheet in ClojureScript, a Closure Script spreadsheet. Uh we haven't I don't think we've done that. I'm not sure anyone's done that, but that's because we already have awesome spreadsheet
2: software. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like some of the, some of the things that are interesting about a spreadsheet is that first you have two kinds of cells. There are input cells and formula cells. Input cells are the ones that you edit, right? you know, so you'd have, and formula cells like in Excel, they start with, you know, you type equal and then you type a formula. And that formula is like an in, I can't think of this word. It's really killing me. Invariant. In Invariant. Invariant, yes, thank you. Yes, or a constraint. <laughs> right, right. So this is like an invariant. Uh, a formula is an invariant. It's that you specify that, you know, if you have a formula, so let's say you have two cells, A1 and, and B1 in Excel, and you're just going to type numbers into there. And then you have cell C1, which is equal A1 plus B1. That says that that cell will never be, its value, the value associated with that cell, will never not equal the sum of the value in A plus the sum, plus B and additionally there's a guarantee that the formula will update only once in other words if you make one when you change input cells formulas will not update more than once or unnecessarily so if the value if the things if the the cells that they depend on have not changed their values no updating will occur so work does not need to be done And if work does need to be done, it'll be performed only once. This is pretty important because you can imagine sort of a naive way to make a spreadsheet would be to, you know, you have your cells and whenever anything changes, you know, kind of like how macro expansion works in Clojure, you keep evaluating all the formulas until they stop changing. So originally I had a a simple thing that, that worked like this and we kind of devised and that's called glitches. in in like spreadsheet parlance kind of. Uh, So glitch elimination is important because you have situations like we called it the pregnancy test, which was say you have a form and the form has, you know, your, your sex, which could be male or female. And then if you're female, you could be pregnant or not. And every time you click in this, and so this is in like a user interface in a form. And anytime you modify this form, it should send it should send the current state of the form to the back end, but such that it is always valid, meaning if you're male, you're never pregnant, and so on. And if you don't have glitch elimination, it's pretty much impossible to do this, Mm -hmm. like without building glitch elimination into your system. Because you have, suppose you're female and pregnant, and you change your sex to male. It has to know to uncheck the female part. I'm sorry, the pregnant part. So with Javelin, we make that a formula cell and stuff.
1: So cells together in Javelin can constitute a type, like a closure script def type. Uh, but even cells in a normal spreadsheet, they have a contract, which is every cell has a value at all times. Yeah. And that maps up really well with the way closure works and Clojure's philosophy of state and time, because in closure, there's a rigorous separation of looking at something versus changing it. Like every reference type enclosure, you have the ability to dereference it. You can see its value at a point in time. And to add, an, add a watch. Right. So you can, these, these reference types of, you know, Adam's the most popular, but they're, you know, agents, refs.
0: arrays, VARs. Yeah,
1: yeah, VAR, yeah. All of these things, you can see their value and hold on to that value for the rest of the program. You don't need to worry about what happens to the underlying tainer, the box. And Javelin cells work like that, too both the input cell and formula cell types support dereference. And this dereference, because we do the propagation eagerly and in dependency order, the dereference is going to give you a consistent
0: mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in working with um, Javelin, I, it was actually one of the things that got me using Hoplon for the, the, the little side project I've been using it for is that you know, I'm a back-end guy. I don't I don't I don't really do the front-end stuff very much, although I've been doing more of it recently. And kind of it was a, it's always a question of when you roll up to a new library or framework, what do you need to know? And for me, um, to a first approximation, the thing I needed to know in order to understand Javelin, which is an important part of doing a Hoplan application, was atoms and watches, which are very familiar concepts to me as a back-end programmer. Um, now, of course, there's more, right? You guys were talking about the fact that, you know, you can have chains of dependencies and there's an atomicity guarantee. But, you know, to a first order, it seemed very comfortable. It's like, oh, there's a thing and I can look at it. And there's an API for changing its value, which is actually swap and reset. So, hey, that looks a lot like an atom. So that part was all very right. familiar. And I think I think the stuff that you were saying about the, the model makes a lot of sense. Um, I do want to make sure that we um, talk as well about uh, Hoplon because Javelin is – very cool, and I found it a very um, uh, comfortable, familiar, easy to acquire way to model my programming. Not without some onboarding, but, but you know, it didn't take very long. But, uh, but you know, it, it wasn't bad, I think most people would roll up to it. So I'm, I'm curious then to talk more about, well, I don't want to cut you off. There's more interesting to say we should say it, but. Um, yeah, no, I,
1: I see the way you want to go. Yeah, to yeah. Direction. So, yeah. So Javelin has nothing to do with the browser, or the DOM, or HTML. Which is part of the reason I, f- I think that we feel like it's done as a library. Like sure. it's like it, it occupies a part of our the Hoplon framework and our workflow in which it's just done. We're not going to add anything to it. And we're not going to deprecate anything. It's 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 done as a library. Um, <clears throat> which also, if it if that was all there was, it would be useless because like how do you <laughs> how do you make a web page with it? Well, right. there is no in, inherent way in doing that. So there is a linkage. Uh, conceptual and software between Javelin and the browser. And that is, traditionally we call that HLISP. And it's there are library components of it um, that are in the Hoplon boot task. Uh, but it is a set of conventions for working with the native DOM elements that allows you to use native DOM elements to provide views into your Javelin uh, spreadsheets. I don't know, does that seem like a good...
2: Yeah, I mean, Hoplon, like, originally, like, in 2012, doing stuff in ClojureScript was, like, not... It was a lot more difficult than it is now. And so a lot of the stuff that is in Hoplon was to make that easier, too. So... And then when we when we made boot, we incorporated them into, into the boot tasks. But, you know, so, so there's the... Hoplon itself is a library that... A ClojureScript library that you can use in any application uh doesn't need boot or anything like that but the boot task does things like creating the actual html file in which you're going to run your javascript you know pre-rendering stuff which means you know you can run your application in phantom js to generate the html stuff like that so so there's hoplon the library and then there's like the stuff that boot does which is optional but you know me myself i find it useful like i don't i don't want to be hand coding html files anymore so my applications are kind of more like just JavaScript that I want to launch into somebody's browser. And the only way I can do that is if an HTML file is generated somehow. And Hoplon itself was really, it's sort of meant to be a foundation for something something more useful, to write something more useful on top of it. It doesn't actually do very much at all. It just allows you to wire up Javelin cells to DOM elements. And you could think of DOM elements as... Well, first of all, in Hoplon, all of the DOM elements that appear on the user's screen in the browser are created via JavaScript, meaning they're JavaScript objects first, and then they go into the DOM. They're not HTML. They're not DOM elements that are created from HTML. So when you think about it that way, the goal of it is to provide a platform that you could hook up your application state, which is expressed as these cells, these formula cells, input cells, and so on, to widgets that you make by composing these DOM elements. And so like, if you think about a JavaScript, the JavaScript rep- representation of a DOM element, you have properties and methods on them, and you can call set attribute and so on. And my kind of intuitive view, the way I think about it is attributes are like methods on the DOM element. And kind of like a world line of this, of the method. So if you, if you take like the class attribute of an element and you hook it up to a javelin cell that might contain different values over time, meaning the class might change over time, you could sort of consider that to be a method that's called every time the value in the cell changes.
1: It would be as if you had a had, say you had the class string and an atom, and then separately you created a DOM object and then you made a watch an add watch with a function that set the new value on the thing every time it changed
2: and that's precisely what hop one is actually doing, right so it just makes it easy for you to express it as attributes you know when you type your source code
0: right in in Alan's example, the nice convenience is that. You, you don't have to link up the cell or the atom and the attribute via some piece of code that runs. You just say the value of this attribute is the javelin cell and then the wiring happens.
1: Right, so conceptually you can think of attributes as continuous, basically, mm. as opposed to one-shot things that you have to set manually.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think of it like a world line of a method or something, like you have this object that has a method and it's going to be called with different values over time, right. you know? But you don't care about that plumbing, really, right? And the thing that represents the values which will be used over time is the cell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Yep.
2: Um, so that's that's what. You, so so in Hoplon, you have uh, the Hoplon element; these DOM elements. They have attributes, which are like methods on the object, and they have children. And children have a special, a special relationship in you know in the browser. So elements can contain other elements, obviously, and so the children can also change over time. And that's really it. There's not much more. And so what Hoplon, what we wanted to do with it is we wanted to make a, a foundation that we could build
1: um, UI kits on top of. And this comes back to the original motivation with the white labeling at the fresh diet. This is right. kind of, we've arrived at the problem we well set out to solve originally, which was how do we describe an application in terms of both its workflows and its ui in separate pieces such that we can modify one or the other without necessarily modifying the other
2: yeah and to be able to so the 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 goal the end goal would be that you know you identify some some widget that's going to be useful to you say um let me think of uh, so like just take an input like a text area a text input about completing.
0: I actually yeah. I actually have an example from a side project that I I think might be what you're talking about and you can tell me whether you think yeah. this if if you like I can share it and you can tell me whether you think this is what you're talking about. Absolutely. So I use Toplon to write a weather generator for my, my one of my hobbies, flight sims. I'm making weather for this, this this game that I fly in. It's random, it has neat features, you can control things about it, doesn't matter. So I fly with other people online. And um, I would like the weather to be a surprise, right? I I don't want them to know that when we come back to uh, the airbase that they're going to have to land in the middle of a thunderstorm (laughs) necessarily, right? But at the same time, you know, we're interested in this experience where you can see what the weather is because, hey, they could stick their head out the window when they take off, right? And they kind of know. And so I'd like to provide them with, with a weather forecast. And so I have the same data. Like I have this model that I can manipulate, and I have like a you know, set of controls for doing that, so I can step forward in time and say, okay, yep, storm's going to arrive at 3 o'clock, that's about when we'll be landing. But then I want to also give them that same exact data, like the whole model is parametric, and so everything is completely deterministic. But I don't want them to be able to go past you know, takeoff time. It's like, because you know, if it were the real world, they would know what the weather was, but they wouldn't know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same data the same computation but it's a different it's a different view it has limitations it's not it's not the same you know if you were looking at it without knowing anything about the internals it's not the same application even though the underlying data is and and not only data but computation is identical is that kind of what you guys are talking about
2: yeah i think i think that's well what's interesting about that is that there's a separation of the presentation from the sort of state machine that describes the different, the different things that get dis, that gets get presented in the context of your widget, right?
0: I didn't quite follow that. Explain further, please.
2: Well, so so you have a you have a widget there that is going to display the the weather for the user, but not. Um, but they won't be able to see the weather for the future. Right? I've got, so
0: I've got two u- sets of users. One is me, the weather designer, and I've got like tons of controls where I can say it's 30% likely to rain. It's like the winds are this, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm I'm like, great. I know the weather for all time, including the future. And then I want to be able to say, take that same data, some other user, and get a different view on the same information, but that's limited in terms of how they can interact with it. They can't. Change things they can't. Maybe they can change a few things like where they are in time, but even there, maybe not past a certain point that I specify. And right. I was just really wondering if that's kind of what you were getting at around saying. Well, there's still a workflow. There's still there's still a when time goes from two o'clock to three o'clock, the following things change in the underlying. Like the data is the same, but the way I interact with that, what I can see, what I can can interact with is different.
2: Yeah, that's actually a good example because I could imagine the situation when you know maybe you maybe you are going from your view to like the pilot view also or something like that and so you could be turning things on and off inside of your widget like certain controls are only visible if you are in god mode versus pilot mode or, or something like that mm-hmm. and so you might have you might design a widget that has those as you know exposes them as attributes you know so you could have an external state machine that tells it which state it's in, you know, the presentation part, the widget, the thing that's in the DOM would be controlled. Maybe, you know, the, the different um, configurations of it are via attributes, just like in the normal DOM elements, you know, you change the configuration of the built-in DOM elements by adjusting the values of these attributes. And the idea in Hoplon was to expose the same exact interface. Mm. So you can make your own widget that exposes the same, the same ways, means of controls like these attributes and children, you know, that you could do the same thing on yours. So, so the, the components that you make are not different than the ones that come in the browser, like, you know, text area or whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, I think your example is great from another perspective too, which is, you have this underlying process, which in your case is parametric and very well defined, but the magic to it, the, the purpose for its being is that not all of the users can see into all of it? Not everybody has full fidelity. Like different kinds of users have different levels of access, kind of. So I can imagine in your case, like you have the God mode view, and then you have and you have the pilot view. And let's say you have a widget for each of these, or maybe a set of javelin cell values that determine uh, what certain widgets show or don't. Like I'm imagining in the in your God mode thing, you have a slider from the past into the future by some number, and the pilot has a slider from the past to the present, and that's managed, whether or not the, the, the user can see the weather in the future is, depends on whether the god mode cell is true or false. But maybe the god mode cell or is not really that, maybe it's named like the user level cell, and it can be one of god, you know, keywords here, keyword god, keyword <laughs> pilot, or maybe keyword equax, you know, what are one of those planes with the big saucer? Mm-hmm. The AWACS. The AWACS uh, weather guy has even has more fidelity than the pilot, but not as much as God. So, you know, maybe his, his maps are higher quality. He's a lesser God.
2: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) A
1: demigod. But that's, I mean, we find the exact same thing in, in our business applications that we build with this stuff, which is there are all these different concerns and they're usually oriented around the way the person is supposed to interact with the system, whether it's like constraints based on the kind of user they are or, um, constraints based on what the way that's most efficient for them to work with the system is. And uh, yeah, I, the separation of the widget behavior from the underlying model behavior is I think the way of building these things that gives you the most flexibility to, 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 to do that. And especially, I mean, the, the key thing is being able to add, remove, and modify these perspectives over time. Which is- Yeah, like, yeah. The, the really key thing is that, well, I think, and we
2: pretty much achieved this with the application that we have um, at work, Is that there should be like sort of two separate, completely separate phases of development, or not even phases because they happen at the same time? But you have widgets that you're working on, so you you develop these widgets, and then your application is actually just an assembly of widgets, which is different than an. I mean, it becomes an application, but by assembly I mean you only use composition essentially to construct it. Mm -hmm. So you make all these components, and the way you compose them, the way you build an application from all of these separate components is exclusively composition. I mean, obviously there's going to be like a few little conditionals here and there, but if you if you were to look at the source for you know, the adzerk UI, all of the views are simple composition of these components. And the big advantage there is like if you consider, for example, like we did a lot of work around forms and how to handle forms, and by that I mean like things that talk to the back end and also interact with the user, and so we developed like a really I think it's a really good system, where um, we have a state machine that describes talking to the back end, and so we have a you know this RPC framework that we use,
1: Castra, right? The library Closure Script Closure,
2: yeah. And so the, the state machine on the front end is an object. It's a, it's a, um, a def record. And there are methods on this object that you can call, which might cause it to change state, might not. But you can call them to command a change. And it exposes its state as Javelin cells. And if you think about, like, you have, a say, a login form is pretty simple. You have username, password. There will be, you construct a form machine for that form and maybe tell it the schema so it knows you have these two fields. But then it'll expose to you an error cell for the username and an error cell for the password and it'll expose the data cell for the username and the data cell for the password because there might be some default there or you might have already edited, whatever. So the, the machine has this and you can wire those cells up to DOM elements on one end and whenever you change them so the way we like to do it, you, there's many different ways to make this state machine, but the one that we settled on is you can edit a form as much as you want as a user, and when you first click Submit, that's when validation happens, and then thereafter, as you type, validation is done as you type. And the validation is actually all done on the back end to simplify, to simplify our whole model. So um, every time you, you type, it's, it's validating on the back end, and um, the the error cells are being populated and what the error cells or the there's also like a general state for the state machine that is exposed as a cell but the benefit here is that imagine I'm actually making the widget now for this form so I can have a widget that a sub widget that displays an error right and I could have a widget that accepts input from the user and All I need, these things are completely decoupled Mm,
1: mm
0: -hmm. from the
2: state machine because they're going through this common interface now of attributes. So for example, I might have, right, and cells. So I might have like, so we in fact do have this. We have our own text input, which does certain things and displays itself in certain ways, whatever. So you do text input and then colon value, which is the way you set attributes, and you give it the data cell from the form machine. So now whenever you type in there, the form machine is, updated, is getting that updated data, because it also, you know, it knows about this cell. And likewise, the error gets passed as an attribute to the little widget that we make that,
1: you know, displays the errors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if, if people listening to this are coming from a JavaScript background, they'll recognize some of the affordances of this set- setup and the idea of a promise, which is a kind of trending JavaScript idea, but a promise... If you're, you know, so if you're not familiar, it's, it's basically a value that you can get or an object that you can get that, can, can, that will contain a value. Clojure has them too, incidentally. Uh, and a value can be delivered to the promise once. And when the value is delivered, there's an API for a function being called. So it's kind of like a one-shot atom. And where a promise is a one-shot atom, a cell is like a continuous promise, again. Because it's not just, it doesn't just fire once when the value changes. Whatever thing is looking at it, you can use stuff in Javelin. To make happen whenever the value changes forever,
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, the difference there though, is that Javelin does maintain the dependency graph,
1: that,
0: yeah,
2: so like if you have a web of promises right. that's where you get into trouble
1: right, right, yeah, unless you're very diligent
0: <laughs> yeah, so that and, and, and so, like i said I've, I've built applications, and this this makes sense to me in fact it it was kind of the first UI framework that I tried that that I did really connect with. And and I mean, to be fair, I didn't give all of the others as much of a run as I've now given Hoplon. So, but still, well, I know,
1: I know that you were a huge spreadsheet fan originally. I too, do love right? spreadsheets. I imagine exactly. we suckered you in a little with yeah, that. no,
0: there's definitely an, I am a huge <laughs> fan, fan of spreadsheets. However, you know, there's an XKCD where, you know, there's like an amusing graph of complexity and, uh, at, at the left end is, you know, like a two line bash script. And at the right end is, some spreadsheet that's been being maintained for 20 years to maintain the scheduling in some church in Georgia, right? Like that's the, the joke in the slide (laughs) in the, uh, in the comic, I'll have to post a link to that. And so the, the point though, is that, um, you know, there exists some extremely sophisticated spreadsheets in the universe. And I think something that some of our audience will have been exposed to is this common task, which is, well, I made a spreadsheet and now the spreadsheet's inadequate. And so now I have to turn it into a, and I'm using air quotes here, real program. Right. so, so, I guess what I'm trying to ask is I I could kind of imagine that the cell model, you know, where you have this um, potentially very uh, wide graph of uh, interconnected um, bits of computation to have a sort of um, complexity ceiling. Now, I've only used Hoplon to solve uh, small-ish problems. I mean, I think the thing that I did actually has... It's non-trivial. The things that I've done are non-trivial, but you know, they're small compared to anything that I would have done if I were working on it day in and day out like you have been doing with your work at Adzirk. Have you experienced limitations of the cell model? Because I kind of, if I squint, I could convince myself that, that you would fall off a complexity cliff eventually there. Has that been your experience?
1: So... <clears throat> I I guess I would say there are two kinds of ceilings, and one is easily navigable, and the other is, I guess, sort of open, open, and we can talk about this thing called UI, but um, cells definitely have straightforward technical limitations uh, just because of the way the browser works, and the, the foremost of these is that they're not automatically garbage collected by the JavaScript runtime because of the way we maintain the dependency graph and because JavaScript doesn't have a weak reference and probably never will for security reasons, um, it's possible using cells naively, and people do this regularly, uh, to have memory leaks. And so there's a certain diligence that comes with working with cells, and it's I think it's easy to learn and it's in practice not a huge problem. But it's a definite hard technical limitation. You can easily drive yourself crazy trying to if, you're, if you sort of have the wrong mindset. So you can sort of correct the way that you're thinking about using cells and easily get yourself out of this. Um, the other limitation, which is kind of the open problem, is cells presume so little about, cells and hop on presume so little about how you're going to build your application. Misha talked about this a little earlier when he said that, you know, our goal is to get you to the place where you can start to solve the problem. We don't presume to solve the problem completely for you at all. I think how you approach that is going to be application dependent. And, it's, and whether or not you reach the complexity ceiling is kind of on you. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the UI library.
0: I would yeah, love I mean, to hear about that, actually.
1: Okay. Or maybe, Misha. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't actually see...
2: Like, we have really big hop-on applications now. Big meaning, like, many, many different screens and a lot of complex workflows and backends, you know. So the, the one that we're building at Adzerk is pretty complex application and complex workflows. And we really haven't, like, I don't really see that we're even approaching any kind of, I don't see a complexity growing at all. Hmm. And the reason is because, just like in a spreadsheet, like the, the reason why spreadsheets get unmanageable, it, I think, is mostly because, like, the names. In other words, it, it, you know, being in the grid with A1 and B7 and so on, like, that's okay if it's small. But, you know, if you're making a bigger, if you're making an application with spreadsheets, you
1: kind of want to have names for things. Right. And you can't have anonymous cells in a spreadsheet, of course. So you can't right. make self-contained machinery. Right. Everything is global.
2: Yeah. So this isn't, um, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't something you run into with Javelin. And, and also, like, with Javelin, the formulas that you do have end up being pretty small. Like, if you see a formula starting to get large, you just break it up into smaller ones, just like you would do in a normal spreadsheet. And I think that has, I mean, for me anyway, it just happens naturally that most of the formulas I have are very small and they all just kind of mesh together. And because of the glitch elimination, it's not like like we don't even really have any debugging tools for Javelin. You know, there's no like Alan, I know, made like the graph view of it. And, you know, we keep like losing it and so on. It's
1: just <laughs> well, like, I've so never really found it necessary. I think that could be a thing. Some of the some of the best criticism we've gotten about Hoplon is from Daniel a uh, great friend of mine, awesome guy who worked at uh, Adsur part time on on this Hoplon system, and he he did point out that you know figuring out what's going on is less than easy if you're the people who made it. So I think we can improve there, but we've gotten pretty far without having that. And um, there is a, what I imagine you know in my copious free time doing at some point is making a layer or an extension for Chrome. That gives you a, gra- a visual graph representation of the cells, and then you can click on the cells and see the source code for the cell or its value. And I think that'd be awesome. And that's attainable now because we can put metadata on VARs uh, in ClojureScript. So I think that's just a matter of time. But to Misha's point, it's it's a conceptually simple model. And Misha mentioned that you can you can... Split up a big cell into smaller cells, and you can do that because of our glitch elimination, because of the consistency prob- properties of the model. You can basically, by rote, break a cell into a set of smaller cells, and you don't have to reason again about the states of these cells. Um, yeah, and like when I when I need to debug something, I just
2: make a cell that has you know a printf in it that you know prints out the value of a cell, and I very quickly I can pretty much bisect any any weird javelin issue. I mean, and, and because the like the types of issues that you might have are actually computing problems rather than um, timing issues. You know what I mean? Like, they're mm-hmm. not likely to be race conditions like you would have if you're using a bunch of, you know, promises.
1: Right. Like or a web of promises.
2: Right. So these are all, like, you're just getting the wrong value in some cell. So tracking down, like, how that value arrived there is way simpler than saying, like, are these things is it getting the wrong value because things happened in in the wrong order? You know, right. that's that's the kind of thing that's like time consuming.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So and like so for for the the next step, there's this thing called Hoplon UI. Jess has been working on it. Um he's been doing a ton of work on it. And his goal there is to make a the next level foundation which allows which provides basically a sane or a sane and well factored
1: platform for building user interfaces
2: basically as opposed new, to like
1: documents a new browser he's building a it's basically a browser api on top yeah. of javelin and the conventions in hoplon that we've established like where Today, if you take the stock hoplon stuff and you make an application, you're interacting more or less with stock CSS stuff, stock JavaScript things, DOM things, which is great because that means there are really no surprises. Like you, you can stack overflow, search yes, for things. I've and done
0: so much yeah, of that. <laughs> yeah, so
1: it's, it's all the native stuff, so it's Googleable, But you're not really escaping the inherent complexity of the browser environment by doing that. You're, you're choosing to live in it, for better or worse. The idea with UI, as I understand it, is Jesse has been doing using Hoplon for years, almost as long as we have, and built a series of applications and identified in his own work patterns and practices. And he has put a lot of effort into codifying those into this library UI, which is a, a higher level starting point that doesn't make you give up too much about being in the browser, if anything. So the fidelity is still there. But... The complexity is reduced, which is, I mean, that's a big value proposition. Um, But I think he's, it's really impressive work. So Misha probably knows more about how it works and stuff than I do.
2: Okay. Yeah, I mean, like an interesting thing that you can do with Hoplon is instead of using CSS, you know, in CSS style sheets or, you know, style tags, whatever, you can manipulate attributes from cells. To set the properties directly.
0: Yes, that's actually super interesting that you can do stuff with that that you really can't do easily any other way.
2: Right, so like, you know, even SCSS or LESS or SAS, those things are computing CSS statically and emitting a CSS file. But with Hoplon, um, you, can, you can have a Javelin cell that represents the styles for your element that updates via script at runtime. Meaning, constantly, it's a first class. It gives you first class access, and so what Jesse's done is, on top of that, he's used he's using that to rebuild. So he's he's had experience doing um, Flex and all kinds of action script stuff and
1: Air is that one of the things? Yeah, need?
2: he's done like a ton of all basically all the different ways you can make user interfaces, and from that he's sort of collected. A core set of functionality, and and the, the, one of the the main things is that you know in the in the DOM you have uh, documents and user interfaces and the two are not really very well separated, so there's a lot of concerns for you know like making a newspaper that are conflicting with concerns for making you know G- Gmail, Gmail exactly, and so that's really kind of what
1: he's attacking. He's attacking the user interface side. Hmm. Another example of a a simplification he made, which is one of those like makes total sense in retrospect things and is just constantly fighting with since we started working with JavaScript seriously, is the fact that there are so many different kinds of elements in HTML. Mm -hmm. Like div, p, now there's section, header these are the concerns of the newspaper imposing themselves on the concerns of the people who make things like Gmail in 2016. It's, it's insane. And they all have different default styling attributes and behaviors and different flow properties, have different implications on the, the positioning model. Uh, so what what sold me on the UI concept was he just has a single kind of thing, the LM, E-L-E-M function. And it's a general purpose object that can represent a piece of a user interface hmm. and you can put them inside each other they all have the same number and kind of attributes they all have the same positioning and style default style properties so yeah that's just an example of the yeah version. and you can some of the stuff that so it's it's also a
2: low level library in that you don't it doesn't necessarily give you the the components that you will actually use to build an application it it provides the underlying the the underlying primitive that you need to build a user interface and so the kinds of things that it does is make an element that fills the screen and put inside of it children who fill its parent, who fill their parent but in a certain way meaning like the middle one should be 10 percent and the one on the left should be 20 percent of the width and the one on the right should just fill the rest of it or you might have the one on the right actually contains two others that themselves are each 50% of the remainder, mm-hmm. right? Things like that. So it's essentially, uh, yeah, it's kind of like peredit for, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's one type. So, so there's the LM, but there are also special form. So the, the, the different form elements, you know, like an input box, things like that, those need to be special cases just because of all the concerns of sure. user interaction, like when the person's tab completes and all that right. stuff. So you want those to be, a lot of times they're the browser, like you need to choose a particular element. You can't make your own.
1: Right. But, but he investigated doing that. I mean, I, I remember him talking yeah. about his early work where he thought, you know, what, what if we do the browser visually from first principles? Like, why can't I just use SVGs for everything?
0: Right. You it's, know, it's whatever. It's interesting you say that. I, I was thinking about this, and I would say like the things that I've been gravitating towards as I've been building my applications are div. SVG and Flexbox, which actually Mm -hmm. sounds like a poor man's version of what you're talking about.
2: Yep. Yep. That's exactly what Jesse did as well.
0: Yeah. So just do that
2: for five
1: years and you'll have
0: (laughs) UI. Let me get started. I got (laughs) to (laughs) go.
2: Yeah, yeah. He did a full. He has a lot of interesting stuff to say about Flexbox. And
1: I remember when he was like, yeah, he made everything out of divs for a while. Yep. Yep. I mean, designers frequently do the same thing. I mean, for a long time. A hallmark of any serious large single-page app was the reset.css. It's like okay, let's turn off everything in the browser, so we have a place to start yep. with that's predictable.
2: So what's interesting about UI is that so this LM, this generic component is actually three. It's constructed from three divs. Uh, there's like an outer one, a middle one, and an inner one, and each one of them has its own role to play because of the way padding and margin and width and so on work in the browser he he realized that you need 3 of them in order to get a consistent in order to be able to consistently
1: and to satisfy every aspect of the right. positioning and styling model that he wanted to support which is his view of how you should do it
2: hmm. right and so you would think that this would end, you'd end up with like a ton of like three times as many components in your application but in fact i think we're finding that there are way fewer elements compared to, say, a bootstrap. So, you know, like bootstrap, the Twitter bootstrap is one way that you can, you know, these CSS frameworks that sure. sort of trying to accomplish the same thing, give you a kit, a UI kit that you can use to construct, you know, your your application from. But they actually end up with, like, a lot more, a lot more elements because kind of the only way they can fix things is by adding more structure. Because I think fundamentally... You know, like the LM that Jesse has developed is like a really good fundamental unit that's worked out at a low level. It's the ultimate div. Right. So like in order to fix some weird padding issue, in a bootstrap thing, you'd have to add more wrappers, you know, like maybe a clear div, whatever. You're like adding more and more stuff. And then that compounds itself when you compose those with other and so on. So it's really very interesting. And I think that, you know, we're finally reaching an age like in, in web, you know, the way people use the web, that a lot of business stakeholders are not going to, they don't care about, like, inventing some new user interface, you know, concept. Like, we've already figured out how to interact with the user to get information and give information to them. What's really important, I think, to people now is the workflow. In other words, somebody comes onto my web, onto my application, they're like a business user, and they want to actually get something done. And their time is precious. They don't care if it's all just gray, you know. Like nobody cares what it looks like anymore. Nobody's going to be impressed with like some fancy drop shadow or something. They want to know that they can get in, do their work reliably. Well, that's a and big get difference
1: out. between these. This is kind of the dual, the two faces of the web, and they're always at odds because I don't think people recognize them as totally different concerns. The newspaper, like, are you going to make a killer above the fold catch people's eye brochure site? Or are you going to make an application that people are going to live in for eight hours a day, and they, at, in, within the first 30 minutes of serious use, they're not going to even notice what the colors of the things are. And the primary concern is usability, not necessarily flashiness. Sorry to cut in. I just, yeah, totally. But yeah, that's kind of like in the world that we seem to live in, building large sites of JavaScript, we're definitely on the user experience side, not the new media or design side. And granted, there's there's still some give and take there, but... For the most part, people seem to be interested in, as like Misha said, the workflow. Like, is this an efficient place for someone to live and work in all day long, like one does in Gmail?
2: Yeah, so I can totally imagine something built on Hoplon UI, which implements all of the... Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure that we can now enumerate all of the, all of the types of widgets we're going to need to make business applications. And we can make, you know, instances of them and we can also make, you know, sort of a zoo of state machines that can be composed to form the, the really responsive workflows that you need, the really efficient workflows. In other words, the workflows that help the user accomplish their task
1: more directly.
0: Well, you guys just blew my mind. I definitely have to check out Hoplon UI. Um, and, you know. Oh,
1: but it's important caveat. Yeah, Justin please. Says, Jeffy says we shouldn't use it yet. Okay.
0: But yeah. go ahead and use it.
1: <laughs> yeah, everybody's,
2: everybody's been using it. And yeah. He's, he has like 10,000 warnings. Yeah, the, the
1: readme They're, is just warning after warning. You know, this is unstable. Don't use it. But of course, there are businesses using it now. So
0: Yeah, well, I could kind of, I could kind of imagine that um, I've got like completely broken 10% versions of what he's already doing. And so his 90% semi-broken version might be a vast improvement for what I'm trying to do.
1: Well, in my case, I used it as a reference or a mm-hmm. Rosetta Stone to figure out how to do a CSS thing because mm-hmm. he's he's got the distilled knowledge in there. So uh, there was some CSS three feature I needed to use in some side project recently, and I was able to figure out how to do it from his code. So it's it's useful there
0: too. Well, guys, I, I don't want to cut off conversation because I think, I, in fact, I know we could keep going, and I would, I for one, would be sitting here fascinated. But um. I think there may be people in our audience that need to use the restroom. So, uh, okay. you know, <laughs> well, we they should can
1: wait for just one more little point. I want to make
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: <laughs> which is uh, another hop on community guy, uh, Thomas Herman. He gave a, a, a screencast, which I'm really, uh, I feel bad that we didn't record because it was incredible, but he demonstrated the power of working entirely in code instead of trying to straddle document and code in terms of making an application. And he's a heavy cursive user. So Colin Fleming, another, uh, Closure community superstar has this tool, Cursive. It's uh, a great Closure and Closure Script environment for IntelliJ. Um, I don't use it personally, but I have a lot of friends that do, and they they love it. And uh, it turns out that when everything in your application is Closure Script code, then you can start to use your Closure Script IDE as a design tool. Mm. So Thomas Herman is building a site using UI, and in his demo screencast he showed, he like hovered over the attribute to one of these LM things and the cursive tooltip popped up with all the color values that it could take at that place in the code, because this was, you know, code inference that incidentally was, was style inference because all the style was happening in code. Uh, and you know, he was defining sets of colors and defining maps of class names to colors and that cursive was smart enough to track down and show in the editor. Uh, which seemed like a like a like a like a like a quick a little peek into the future of, of design tools.
0: Oh yeah, I mean I know this is only a corner of what you're talking about, but I totally want now to go back and put into my little apps um, that CSS is code because the the means of abstractions there are garbage, and I'm not using less or SASS right, but they're like it's just terrible, right? Like you have to say the same thing six times. And it's static and blah, 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 blah. And so I think even just that little piece of what you're talking about, to me, looking at it as a front end noob, I'm like, man, that seems like an obvious win. Why don't we have that normally?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I guess I wouldn't go so far to say that less and sass are bad. It's no, just, it's, sorry, that's for, not what I was saying. Yeah, no, no, I was no, saying no.
0: I'm not using them, but CSS itself lacks abstraction.
1: Right. They're great for brochure sites, they're great for designers and who are making, you know, media, but for programmers, not
0: so good. I see what you're saying now. Okay, yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm done with my thing. Cool. You
1: go to the bathroom.
0: <laughs> yes. The it, it is a podcast. There's a pause button. Anyway. That's true. Um yeah, it didn't but, occur to me. but no, but uh but uh, I do think I do think it probably would make sense to can wind you just down. Mute. Yeah, you <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> can mute mute my part. Mute my part. I'm not saying anything yeah. interesting. Uh but I do I do wanna um I do want to kind of kind of bring it to a close here, and I want to make sure that we um, that we have. I mean, Alan, obviously, you you said you wanted to put more thing, and that thing was very worth hearing. So I'd like to make sure we give Misha the same opportunity. Misha, is there anything else that uh, you think we should touch on before we before we wind down to the final question? No, I think we're good. Cool. Yeah, this was awesome, guys. Um, I yeah, I, I I really enjoyed our last conversation, and I'm like, as I was coming into this one them, I'm like, okay, cool you know we talked about uh, we talked about boo we'll talk about javelin and hoplon that that'll be good that'll be good and and clearly um there is a lot to talk about here a lot of really interesting really important stuff to say so much so that i will feel comfortable in saying that we will have you back on again i don't think we'll do a third part to the show but at some point in the future um uh, the not too distant future we'll have you back on it'd be certainly be great to hear more about uh, what's happening in the in the hoplon boot javelin Adzerk, Alan, Misha, universe—always good stuff happening there. But I do, of course, have one more question for uh, Misha, which is: we'd like to close the show with a piece of advice. I'll go ahead and say that you know, use Hoplon is now obvious. Maybe that was your piece of <laughs> advice, but uh, but or at least try it. I suppose would be the, the better way to put that. But uh, but I I'm imagine you have something else in mind. Uh, what what advice would you like to share with our audience today, Misha?
2: Can it be like a little? Pro tip kind of
0: thing? Literally anything
2: you like. Oh, well, I really enjoy, I have a paintbrush in my bag, and I use it to clean off my monitor and my keyboard constantly. Not obsessively, but just whenever there's stuff on my keyboard, and it's,
0: I really enjoy it. Hmm. So it'll get, like, and between the keys, all the crumbs and everything that wind up in there or whatever? Totally. Huh. Well, yeah.
1: you, you used, at one point, you compared yourself to an umpire.
2: It's right. <laughs> kind of a similar habit. Yeah, sweeping off the plate, getting ready to go, and right. I only mention it because now there's like three paintbrush brushes around the office or something. Like, yeah. generally, people enjoy it, so maybe you know,
1: yeah, everyone seems to crack their knuckles, right? Pull out their paintbrush, dust off their screen and keyboard, and then.
0: <laughs> well, I, I have to say, uh, uh, I, I will take that one to heart because I have been known to uh, be on the phone with somebody and to kind of flip my keyboard over. And bang it on the desk, and as a result, like drop it on the floor and hang up a call. And so <laughs> I think the the paintbrush is a much much better way to handle that. I, I like that a lot. Yeah,
1: it's elegant.
0: All right. Uh, well, look, guys, thanks a ton for coming back on. I'm I'm actually I'm I'm really psyched that we were able to do this so soon. At least in podcast time after the last show. I think uh, I think they complement each other really really well. And um, I've been really into your tech, and I said it last show, but I'll say it again. Thanks for making this stuff. It's really cool, and it's made me feel incredibly productive in the browser, a space that I have avoided for like since 1991 when I first saw a browser. <laughs> uh, so thanks a lot for, for both that and for coming on the show to talk to us about it today. Sure, and, Thank I, you.
1: and I've said this, I think the last time we talked about Hopon, but we have a really small, really helpful community, mostly in Slack, in the Clojurian Slack. So if you find yourself toying with this stuff and are stymied or just are curious to see what other people are doing, feel free to join us. And we're always happy to help and talk about what we're up to.
0: Awesome. Good tip All right guys we will we will call it an episode. thanks so much for being on. This has been the Cognicast You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic and we provide consulting services around it, closure and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at cognitech. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes and view cover art, show notes and episode transcripts at our home on the web cognitech.com/podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast@cognitech.com. Our guests today were Alan Dipert on Twitter at Alan Dipert, A-L-A-N-D-I-P-E-R-T, and Misha Niskan on Twitter at M-I-C-H-A-N-I-S-K-I-N. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.